This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Indeed, welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we are going to have a discussion this morning, a fish wrap for you, and we will be joined by Josh Silver, Northampton-based political consultant and political expert, Josh Silver. We want to talk about yesterday's Supreme Court decisions, which I think are particularly the affirmative action decision, which I think is indeed momentous. The Supreme Court decided to gut affirmative action. They said that race-based decision-making, even in some influence in decision-making in admissions to colleges, is not constitutional. It is a remarkable decision. It holds, according to uh, Justice Thomas and Chief Justice John Roberts, that, well, there's no racism in America, so we can be colorblind. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Okay, they didn't quite say that, to be frank and to be honest, but that is the basis of their decision. And it is extraordinary. The dissents, of course, point out that racism is still rampant in America and that when the 14th Amendment was passed after the Civil War because the 13th Amendment, freeing enslaved people, was not sufficient, that the entire purpose of the 14th Amendment was to give a hand up to formerly enslaved people who were denied economic opportunity, who were denied all ability to uh, go to uh, school, who were kept impoverished and kept away from potential education because those were the methods of enforcing white supremacy. And, of course, the Black Codes put an end to Reconstruction. But all that having been said, what, what this court says is, well, we can't have race-based uh, decision-making. Race cannot play a part in that in college admissions because the United States is now a colorblind society. Hooray, we have made it to nirvana. But because it's, it, really it's therefore unconstitutional, which is incredible given what you said about the 13th Amendment, the 14th. And let's not forget the 15th, which says... Uh, citizens shall have the right to vote. It shall not be deprived of them on the basis of race. It couldn't be more explicit. It's not race neutral. It, what, what I think is most extraordinary is the way in which the uh, Supreme Court so cavalierly dismisses racism. But almost as extraordinary is the way in which the Supreme Court so cavalierly dispenses with precedent. The Supreme Court of the United States overruled 50 years of precedent. It's what, more than 50 years of precedent, uh, it's what the uh, Supreme Court did a year ago in overruling uh, Roe versus Wade. It's what the Supreme Court did uh, last week uh, in overruling a significant case involving the Confrontation Clause. It's what the Supreme Court has done time and time again. It is a radical Supreme Court. There is in, I guess, defense of the Supreme Court, one step that the Roberts Court would not take. It would not allow MAGA Republicans in Republican-controlled states to decide presidential elections on their own, regardless of the popular vote. That was a decision the court made this week. It was a step too far. John Roberts did not want to go down in history as the person who facilitated authoritarianism and, frankly, fascism in the United States. That was a step too far. But everything else not a step too far. We are joined by Josh Silver. Josh Silver, uh, a significant article in the Boston Globe uh, last night, and I would appreciate your response to it. It goes like this. 
the Supreme Court has made another momentous decision. It is different from the momentous decision on abortion that the Supreme Court made a year ago, which really galvanized Democratic voters and has, uh, has had the effect of, in fact, ousting uh, Republican-held, MAGA-Republican, anti-choice, anti-reproductive choice views across the country. And the Globe says nah, this, this decision uh, is obviously equally significant, but it is, or at least it is certainly very significant, but it is not going to have the same political effect. I'd appreciate your views. Josh Silver, thanks so much for being with us. Sure. So <clears throat> if it's okay with you guys, I'd like to back up the clock for a second before we talk about the the court saying that you can't do affirmative action. So if you try to just like take like pause and think about the human condition on this planet and how this all fits historically, I think it's important, right? The, the earth is about 4.5 billion years old. Our oldest or uh, sort of um, ancestors of human beings first appeared about 7 million years ago. Um, the most sort of homo sapiens sapiens, the most sort of connected uh, human ancestors that could be related to modern humans is about 190, 200,000 years ago. Okay, so <clears throat> then we look to, seven, to 1776, right? So we're talking about 250 years ago, our nation is founded, slavery becomes rampant, especially in the South for about 100 years, a little more. And then the late, uh, and then, you know, it, 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 and, and we see forms of slavery all the way into the 20th century. So the, the effects of slavery, of enslaving people, putting them under the decks of boats in shackles and bringing them and forcing them to work um, for over 100 years in our country, th these, this is all super recent and has profound effects on those who are enslaved that, la that don't go away after 10 years or a generation. So what is most flabbergasting about what's going on with this court is the, the, the justices who are making their decisions are doing it under this completely uh, absurd premise that the vestiges, the ramifications, the residual effects of slavery are not relevant anymore in 2023, despite the fact that it happened a the tiniest blip ago. Now, yes, this is going to not only affect universities and, and academic institutions, this is going to affect corporations and their efforts, recent efforts to implement diversity, equity, inclusion, and more equity in the workplace. But it also is going to just have a ripple effect that is going to, to be profound in many other ways, including, as you sent me before the show, Bill, the fact that now universities are not going to say, OK, we're not going to consider race at all, but rather it's going to make admissions considerations for universities, um, Harvard and um, I'm forgetting that it was at University of California, the, the two uh, sort North of University of North Carolina and the named uh, institutions in the case. But it's going to make it a much more complicated and cumbersome process that that may actually not be as bad for proponents of affirmative action as once thought. Well, that's because there is a significant line in the chief justice's opinion that says that while the use of race to build a diverse class and 
and the use of race in admissions decisions is unconstitutional. It discriminates against white people. Uh, but there's a line that's significant because the chief justice says, but uh, if race is part of a discussion from an applicant about uh, life obstacles that they have overcome, then that's okay for that information to be in front of an admissions committee, although the admissions committee can then not use the fact of race as a uh, plus or a minus uh, in, in, making an in making an admissions decision, which is a fascinating, absolutely fascinating statement because he says, in effect, for his entire opinion, there is no structural racism that requires a remedial response that would be constitutional. That's impossible. Forget about structural racism. No reason to have to root out uh, the effects of slavery, uh, root and branch. No need to do all that. And then he turns around and says, but if there's an applicant who has encountered structural racism or racism in their life and they've overcome it, then that is the exception to our own ruling. So on one hand, he says, no racism. And on the other hand, he says, well, I acknowledge there is racism. There is a disconnect in the chief justice's opinion that is staggering. Your thoughts? Yeah, well, correct. And, and, and it goes on, the articles go further to describe how admissions officers at universities post the ruling that was issued yesterday are still going to very much be able to make conclusions about the race of, of an applicant and be able to take those uh, that into consideration, not officially, but unofficially, a lot more subjective decision making, which ironically goes directly against the goals of the plaintiffs who won yesterday, right? Who want to see everything based on standardized type texting that says, you know, we've, you've taken a test and you are smarter than you. So you get in. There's no subjective analysis. The fact is, is that no no Supreme Court and no ruling can actually effectively prevent admissions officers from use, using subjective decision making in their process, regardless of what's written on paper in terms of the metrics that they're ostensibly using. So in many ways, Bill, I don't think that yesterday's ruling is going to be as toxic and damaging as one might think. That doesn't mean it's not bad, but I'm, I'm just not convinced that it's going to have as profound a negative impact as some think. Well, I think that's true if, if we find other ways to sort of target the objective of uh, promoting equity and, and diversity and inclusion. Representative Bobby Scott, Democrat from Virginia, he's the ranking member of the House Education Committee, He's now calling on the Attorney General Garland to start vigorously investigating schools that have admissions requirements that have, quote, have discriminatory impact. He's saying that, hey, we might not be able to say we're accepting you because you're a member of a minority, and, uh, but we can say if you're rejecting someone on a basis that seems to have a discriminatory impact, that should be litigated by the Justice Department. And the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law has committed itself last night, recommitted itself to seek and litigate those kinds of practices that, and is targeting legacy admissions, which Bill was talking about yesterday, eliminating standardized testing, um, and as Bill was just alluding to, looking at, at, at uh, admission applications and essays 
uh, that demonstrate that they've overcome obstacles, social obstacles, but, more than some applicants but, have. But, All those things are ways of doing what you're saying, Josh, which is sort of mitigating the horrific nature of this opinion. Yeah, but let me just turn the question back to you guys, because you guys are lawyers and I don't. But I think if we're simplifying this for the audience, can we say that one is one side of this debate is around a proactive question in one and the other is reactive, right? So what the court said yesterday is you may not proactively give someone favor because of the color of their skin to give them into school or what have you. And that will go across more than schools, but it'll be corporations and elsewhere. The other is reactive and yesterday's decision does not change the criteria by which you could judge a discrimination suit for discriminating against someone for say firing them because of the color of their skin. Is that correct? Yes and no, Josh. On one hand, the Supreme Court has made clear that the effects of discrimination against people of color in and of itself is actually not a violation. There has to be intent uh, to discriminate. That's almost across the board. So part of what you say is true. The other part that I think is really significant is that what the Chief Justice says in his opinion Right after he says, you can write your essay and tell us all about the obstacles you've overcome because of racism, is you can't use this exception to essentially do an end run about around the decision we're making today, which is you can't consider race. I mean, this is an invitation to protracted and prolonged litigation uh, for a long time to come. I mean, I don't know if I completely answered your question, but that, that is a response. Uh, I would like to ask you this, Josh. What do you think the political ramifications are? This is our segment, Political Gold, with Josh Silver. What do you think the poli- – how is this going to play out politically? You know, I don't – I'm not entirely convinced this is going to be significant in terms of, you know, who gets elected in the next cycle and who doesn't, how this is going to favor Democrats or Republicans. I I don't think this is a big difference maker. The, the American public seems – pretty split. There are some statistics, there are some polls that do show that the majority of Americans uh, in in some ways, depending on how you frame the question, agree with yesterday's decision. So this is not like uh, many of the decisions that the conservative court and the Republicans have backed recently where it's a real, you know, a, a real political drag on their party in the election. So I don't think that's going to be that notable. I do think that one thing we can we could we could tackle after the break is there was another major Supreme Court decision since I was last on the show. Not sure if you covered it on yours, but the court actually made a, a good decision, which is that they they voted uh, against the move the forward uh, passage of, of what's called the independent uh, state legislative doctrine or something of the sort, which essentially would have given state legislatures absolute unilateral control over state and federal elections. And that could have opened a massive, dangerous Pandora's box of rogue, far right, deep red states just sending alternate slates of electors because they're mad that Trump didn't get officially elected and all kinds of shenanigans that the Supreme Court brushed back and was actually very positive. We are indeed going to take a break from our conversation with Josh Silver. This is Political Gold with Josh Silver. Before we go I to this break, I want to quote a couple sentences from Justice Sotomayor's dissent yesterday. Today, this court stands in the way and rolls back decades of precedent and momentous progress. It holds that race can no longer be used in a limited way in college admissions to achieve critical benefits. 
in so holding the court cements a superficial rule of colorblindness as a constitutional principle in an endemically segregated society where race has always mattered and continues to matter. The court subverts the constitutional guarantee of equal protection by further entrenching racial inequality in education, the very foundation of our democratic government and pluralistic society. Because the court's opinion is not grounded in law or fact and contravenes the vision of equality embodied in the 14th Amendment, I, says Justice Sotomayor, joined by two of her colleagues, I dissent. We'll be right back. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It wasn't necessary and it probably wasn't even appropriate on the one hand. I don't want that to sound like I don't support schools. I have a long history of supporting schools, certainly longer than any one of those city councilors where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP, news, information, and the arts. What do you take to the beach? A book. Go to Broadside, get a beach read. Like Happy Place by Emily Henry. Romantic Comedy by Curtis Sittenfeld. Have you read Lessons in Chemistry? Read it by the water. Broadside Bookshop Summer Reads. For the beach or a lazy afternoon in an Adirondack. Stacey Abrams' new thriller is Rogue Justice, and you won't be able to put it down, except maybe for a quick dip to cool off. Broadside, Northampton's community bookstore. Order any book on the Broadside website. Have it delivered to your door or pick up at the store. At Pioneer Valley Habitat for Humanity, we believe in a hand up, not a handout. Habitat's mission to provide home ownership opportunities for low-income families is unique as it requires partner families to work alongside the many volunteers that are reaching out to help them. Each Habitat partner family provides at least 250 hours of sweat equity or physical labor toward the construction of their own home, other Habitat family homes, and special projects. We believe this shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder joint effort results not only in a better finished house, but that this shared work experience makes for a better community. If you believe everyone should have a decent place to live, that home ownership brings strength and stability to families, and that everyone deserves the opportunity for a better future, we could use your support. We're Pioneer Valley Habitat for Humanity. We build homes, hope, and community in both Franklin and Hampshire counties. Learn more today, please visit us at pvhabitat.org. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our segment, Political Gold, with Josh Silver, Northampton-based political expert and consultant Josh Silver. We were talking during the break, Josh, about Donald Trump. And we were talking about the effects of yesterday's affirmative action decision by the Supreme Court. We continue that conversation on politics. I'm wondering if you could uh, give us your sense of what to make of that decision and whether it will or will not. I think you've indicated you don't think it's really going to necessarily have much of an effect on politics. But I did see this morning that Trump's poll numbers on likely Republican primary voters was down from 68 to 60. Uh, I have not seen a statement from former President Trump about yesterday's affirmative action decision from the Supreme Court. I'm wondering how you think this is going to affect the Republican primary. I, I mean, I don't think it's going to very much just because, you know, let's keep in mind that 
every Republican, you're going to be so shocked, uh, Bill and Buzz, that that every Republican candidate for president is cheering the, the court's decision. Uh, there's not going to be anything differentiating them. There's very little differentiating the field right now, other than things like, you know, Mike Pence was in Ukraine yesterday, uh, you know, getting, say, essentially saying, like, we need to be in Ukraine. That's a split in the party. But you know, it also depends on the numbers you're looking at. CNN did a recent poll of Republican and Republican-leaning registered voters. This is not likely voters. Um, it found that support for Trump has has gone down to 47 percent from 53 percent uh, just a month ago. So, and this is post-indictment. So, you know, the indictment, the federal indictment of uh, of of Trump has dropped his numbers sub 50%. That's notable. Same poll showed that most Americans writ large, not just Republicans, think that 71% of uh, 71% of Americans think that politics played a role in the decision to indict him. But if you turn your attention then, so okay, so that's interesting. Oh gosh, you know, Trump's getting less popular. Maybe DeSantis is go- is 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 going to start rising again and and seem like a credible potential Republican nominee. But then you look at the polling on, for example, Ohio. This is just very recent polls from this week. Ohio has Trump ahead of DeSantis by 44 points amongst likely Republican voters, 59% to 15%. If you look at um, uh, states like um, just I'm just looking here. Pennsylvania, Trump is up 49 to 25. Um, nationally, in a Fox News poll, has Trump up 56 to 22. So, the margins today, Wisconsin, uh, Trump is uh, actually interestingly close. So there are outliers. I show I told you about Ohio and Pennsylvania. Wisconsin, it's almost tied with Trump and DeSantis. That's an interesting potential canary in the coal mine. In some ways, that number is more interesting to me than any, that there may be room for, for DeSantis to actually win some states that, that we were a window that we hadn't seen before. Bottom line, still as of today, Friday, June 30th, um, light years away from the primary. I mean, the first primary is not for another six months. Um, it's very difficult to envision Biden not winning the presidential nomination for the Republican Party. I can understand. You mean Trump? I'm sorry, Trump. Trump, yes. Uh, will this, will the road decision, this decision on affirmative action, will it spur some voters to show up who otherwise might not have showed up for the 2024 election? I mean, I, I don't think so, Buzz. I, th- I think it's I think that you're going to see that it's somewhat helpful with a black voter base for the Democratic Party that is currently very disengaged and very like tepid about Joe Biden. This is an issue. And Joe Biden knows this is an issue. Uh, the numbers are scary in terms of just how unmotivated black voters are by the Biden administration. That is why, to answer Bill's question, that's why he immediately came out on this. On the other hand, the vast majority of black voters are not really paying that much attention to affirmative action based on the research I've seen and don't feel passionately about it as as an issue that determines their vote. So 
again, bottom line, I don't think this is going to be a game changer politically, but it is a game changer in terms of the future of efforts to diversify workplaces and academia. Josh, I'd like to go back. We just have a couple minutes left, but I'd like to go back to the observation you made, which is uh, between now and the re, uh, the first primaries, uh, more than six months will elapse. That is an eternity in politics. And I'm wondering whether, given the potential trial dates for Donald Trump starting early in the primary season and the potential for other indictments, both from Georgia and federally, regarding January 6th, whether or not that those legal processes are apt to have an important influence on the Republican primary selection process? Well, so, so, so far, Bill, it's a really good question. So far, the answer would be no, it's not going to have a profound impact. As I mentioned, you saw that five point drop um, in this, in the CNN poll I just mentioned, notably, those are not likely voters. Those are registered voters. The, the anecdotally, what we're seeing is that when Trump gets indicted, there is are enough likely Republican voters who are fired up by that and actually inspired to support him that Trump actually gets stronger, if anything, with Republican voters that are going to actually turn out for the primary. Those are a different group of Republicans than turn out for the general, right? The most right-wing, most rabid voters tend to turn out for the primary. But this is all uncharted territory, right? You remember there's never been a former president that's been charged on federal crimes, felony crimes. It's never happened in the history of our country. Nobody knows the playbook. But I, I as of today, I find it extremely unlikely that Trump is going to be beaten in the primaries, regardless of what happens with the federal or state cases against him in the news in court. Absent, the only other two wild cards here are one, he suffers serious health issues and Kamala becomes, uh, you know, more of the sort of prime front, front, you know, candidate. And that's highly problematic in terms of her lack of the things we talked about on the last show. She's, she's not very liked. There's a lot of misogyny and racism in this country. She's not a strong candidate or if Ron DeSantis can turn around his campaign. And that's a big open question because there's still a lot of time for this charismatic autocrat from Florida to turn around a, a now flagging campaign and gain momentum and give Trump a real run. That is still a real possibility. Yeah, and we should note that DeSantis has $100 million in a bank account to spend on this campaign, and the Koch brothers just raised another $70 million for the purpose of defeating Trump. Josh Silver, thank you so very much for your insights. Thanks for being with us. You have been listening to Political Gold with Josh Silver. We'll take a quick break. Back with Max Page. More on yesterday's affirmative action decision from the Supreme Court right after this. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. This news update in Spanish is brought to you by our friends at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. 
la Corte Suprema anuló el jueves la acción afirmativa en las admisiones universitarias, declarando que la raza no puede ser un factor y obligando a las instituciones de educación superior a buscar nuevas formas de lograr cuerpos estudiantiles diversos. La mayoría conservadora de la Corte anuló efectivamente casos que se remontan a 45 años atrás al invalidar los planes de admisión en Harvard y la Universidad de Carolina del Norte, las universidades privadas y públicas más antiguas del país respectivamente. La decisión, al igual que el trascendental fallo sobre el aborto del año pasado que anuló Roe vs. Wade, marcó la realización de un objetivo legal conservador buscado durante mucho tiempo. El presidente del Tribunal Supremo, John Roberts, dijo que durante demasiado tiempo las universidades han concluido erróneamente que la piedra de toque de la identidad de un individuo no son los desafíos superados, las habilidades desarrolladas o las lecciones aprendidas, sino el color de su piel. Nuestra historia constitucional no tolera esa elección. Desde la Casa Blanca, el presidente Joe Biden dijo que estaba muy, muy enérgicamente en desacuerdo con el fallo de la Corte e instó a las universidades a buscar otras rutas hacia la diversidad en lugar de dejar que el fallo sea la última palabra. El juez Clarence Thomas, el segundo juez negro de la nación que durante mucho tiempo había pedido el fin de la acción afirmativa, escribió que la decisión ve las políticas de admisión de las universidades por lo que son, preferencias sin rumbo, basadas en la raza, diseñadas para garantizar una mezcla racial particular en sus clases de ingreso. Por su parte, la jueza Sonia Sotomayor, la primera latina de la Corte, escribió en desacuerdo que la decisión hace retroceder décadas de precedentes y avances trascendentales. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega, y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Hollywood Media a través de WHMP. This news update in Spanish has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Forbes Library Outreach Delivery Service caters to residents of any age who are homebound due to short or long-term disability in Northampton, Florence, and Leeds. A volunteer will deliver your specific requests or select materials for you based on your interests. We offer books, magazines, CDs, DVDs, and puzzles. Call 413-587-1019 or sign up at ForbesLibrary.org outreach. The Food Bank of Western Massachusetts provides healthy food to families and individuals facing hunger in our region. And right now, with food insecurity the highest it's been in recent years, the Food Bank is distributing more emergency food than ever. Learn more about the Food Bank or get support for yourself and your family. Go to foodbankwma.org or call 413-247-9738. The Food Bank of Western Mass, committed to making sure our neighbors have enough to eat and leading the community to end hunger. For some kids, home isn't a safe place. And in these times, access to trusted adults like teachers and counselors is limited. I'm Kara McElhone, Executive Director of the Children's Advocacy Center of Hampshire County. Our mission is to prevent and end child abuse in our community by providing safety, healing, and justice. The Children's Advocacy Center is open in providing resources to children and caregivers throughout Hampshire County. Please visit us online at cachampshire.org or call 413-570-598. Do you love fishing, swimming, or boating, but hate the trash you find? Do you want to help protect clean water and wildlife? Whether you live near the Deerfield River, Millers, Westfield, Chicopee, or Connecticut, your local river needs you. Join the Connecticut River Conservancy and help us protect our rivers. Our rivers belong to all of us, and each of us has a responsibility. Together, we can make a difference. Learn more about what you can do 
at ctriver.org. And this is our weekly time with Max Page, who is a professor, indeed, at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and is the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association. Max, I'd like to start by reading you the last few lines from uh, uh, Justice Jackson's dissent yesterday. She writes this about the affirmative action decision. The court has come to rest on the bottom line conclusion that racial diversity in higher education is only worth potentially preserving insofar as it might be needed to prepare black Americans and under, underrepresented minorities for success in the bunker. Not the boardroom, a particularly awkward place to land in light of our history, the majority opts to ignore. It would be deeply unfortunate if the Equal Protection Clause actually demanded this perverse, ahistorically, ahistorical and counterproductive outcome to impose this result in that clause's name, the Equal Protection Clause's name, when it requires no such thing and to thereby obstruct our collective progress towards the full, full realization of the Equal Protection Clause's promise is truly a tragedy for us all. Max Page, I'd like to know how you think this decision yesterday from the Supreme Court is apt to affect the University of Massachusetts Amherst. It obviously won't affect colleges that have open admissions, such as community colleges. But for selective colleges, and I think UMass Amherst qualifies as one of those, it is likely to have an effect, a significant effect, at least potentially. And I would appreciate your view as president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association. Yes, thanks, Bill. I mean, we are deeply concerned about this, about its impact on our public colleges as well as private private colleges. Uh, and the evidence is clear from other places, like in California, where they already eliminated racial considerations in admissions. And you saw, have seen a big decline in the number of students of color at those institutions. And I want to emphasize this is you know, the, the, the one way to look at this is as public colleges or just college in general as a personal good that well that that hurts those individuals who no longer gain admission it's bad for the st all students in the colleges and it's bad for society more general it is a there's a clear and been multi proven in in multiple ways that there is a value in having diversity in a classroom on a campus as well as providing opportunity for people um, who have suffered from various oppressions, including racial oppression. So how do you think the University of Massachusetts Amherst is apt to handle this? I mean, UMass has on paper been a proponent of diverse classes. In fact, the black student population as a percentage of the class has declined significantly in recent years. Uh, not a good sign, and this I fear may actually exacerbate that failure in admissions to UMass Amherst. Your view? Well, I think they're, I think every single admissions office uh, at every college, I believe almost all, are committed to having diverse student bodies. So now they are going to look at the ruling very closely and figure out ways to try to maintain diverse uh, campuses. Obviously, there's been a lot of news about the way the the judgment talks about um, encourages almost that colleges could look at 
essays written by students to gain admission and that if they discuss race in admissions in those essays that, that could be those essays could be justification for admitting students i suspect what we're going to see is a huge spate of lawsuits from everyone who doesn't get into a college a selective college and suggesting that someone else got in uh, who didn't deserve to because they un improperly used race so i think that the court has opened up just an absolute pandora's box around this but to get back to your main question i believe that every campus is going to be looking at ways to maintain a diverse student body and one there are a number of avenues one of which um, we can maybe get to as, as a key part of the solution is guaranteeing that colleges will be debt free and i think that's one step forward right colleges can become debt free Colleges can uh, eliminate the requirement for SAT scores. There's lots of two things that the colleges can do to uh, try to encourage and select a diverse class. I would be interested in this, and it might be more of a question for an admissions uh, uh, office off officer, um, but I would be interested to know, is this decision apt to uh, restrict on-campus visits by prospective students? Because, well, if you can see the person, you can make a conclusion, come to a conclusion about that person's uh, race or ethnicity. Well, certainly, I, I will say one of the um, speakers, uh, I, I should step back and say that Governor Healy has created a council um, and includes the Massachusetts Teachers Association, presidents of public and private colleges, and many other advocates in order to um, try to think creatively about what policies need to be implemented to maintain diverse campuses in our state. But one college president specifically asked that question, what about our clubs that we have on campus that are for particular affinity groups? Are those gonna be under attack? I suspect again that, that um, the right wing will be further emboldened to challenge anything that, that seems to uh, lift up um, diversity on campuses and clubs and the like. We will see. That's not in this decision, but I suspect that's the next uh, avenue for the right wing. And students who may share those right wing uh, political uh, perspectives perspectives, uh, and are not admitted, saying, oh, my God, I couldn't write about uh, overcoming racism. Um, because I'm white and therefore I didn't get in and I'm more qualified than the following individuals who were let in. So you were essentially doing exactly what Chief Justice Roberts said you okay. shouldn't do, doing an end run around his decision. That's that's correct. But I really will um, emphasize in various spaces that we the, the, the strategy has to now return to the states. We cannot assume, assume in the next year or two with a divided Congress that anything positive might come out of the Congress. But we have responses here and um, we will um, we, we are putting forward a plan that at least addresses one aspect, which is the affordability question. And if we can say to all young people and their families, you will be able to go to college and graduate without debt, that at least takes away that obstacle. Because remember, because of structural racism, people of color, families of color, students of color, come into college with less wealth, which means they either avoid going to college or they have to take on larger debt. And then they graduate with that debt that it burdens them for decades later. So 
if we as a Commonwealth are able to communicate, we're going to guarantee that you work a little bit, you pay what you can, and then uh, you won't be burdened with that debt. I think that will help a lot of young people of color to consider um, coming to UMass Amherst and among our other public colleges and universities. UMass Amherst is a educational institution with, for the most part, an excellent reputation. And many out-of-state students apply for and attend UMass Amherst. And their, their tuition and fees uh, generally, not, exclusive, not necessarily exclusively, but generally being full-pay students, they don't get scholarships and they don't get in-state tuition fee rates and the like, uh, those out-of-state students help pay for UMass Amherst. Am I, do I have that correct? You do to a degree, although, Bill, in recent years, the university has, has been providing some substantial discounts to highly qualified um, students from outside the state. So they do, get, they do get more tuition, but they've actually really been discounting it, partly to boost the kind of test scores and the like um, and boost the prestige of the university. Okay. You know, th there's a very interesting statement by uh, Chancellor Subhaswamy that people should look at. Uh, the Supreme Court decision on affirmative action, it was just issued yesterday, and it's just a recommitment to creating diversity, even in this climate, even pursuant to what this, uh, this opinion creates and, and talks about ways in which he thinks, including what you were just talking about, Max, which is making it affordable for people of all uh, social and racial backgrounds uh, to attend the University of Massachusetts. It's a powerful statement. I encourage people to look at it. Max Page, thanks so much for being with us. Really appreciate your time and insights. We'll be back with Donabel Casas and Artbeat right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. The Branford Marsalis Quartet plays a kaleidoscopic range of jazz and popular classics. They're on their way to UMass, a theatrical concert-style show that chronicles the journey shared by Paul and Artie. The Simon and Garfunkel story is coming to UMass. The UMass Fine Arts Center season. Tickets are on sale now. America's premier flamenco dance company, Flamenco Vivo Carlotta Santana. UMass alum Stephen Kellogg reads from his book, Objects in the Mirror, and performs favorite songs. The UMass Fine Arts Center. Dance, classical, jazz, theater, and performances you just can't categorize. Plan now for a season of uplifting arts performances. Go to the UMass Fine Arts Center website for the complete calendar. The new season is here. Get your tickets now. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Ah, summer in New England, and the local farmers are showing up at the co-op every day with summer berries, basil, and tomatoes, an endless bounty of fresh fruits and vegetables. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats, sausage, lots of grilling ideas. And in the co-op cheese department, get fresh mozzarella for your caprese salad. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. For some kids, home isn't a safe place. And in these times, access to trusted adults like teachers and counselors is limited. 
I'm Kara McElhone, Executive Director of the Children's Advocacy Center of Hampshire County. Our mission is to prevent and end child abuse in our community by providing safety, healing, and justice. The Children's Advocacy Center is open in providing resources to children and caregivers throughout Hampshire County. Please visit us online at cachampshire.org or call 413-570-5989. And this is indeed Art Beat with Donabelle Cassis, who has with her and us today a very special guest. Donabelle, the microphone is yours. Thank you, Bill. Good morning. You know, the experience of being an artist and a mother and all that entails is a subject of two shows at the Anchor House of Artists Gallery in Northampton, which, by the way, is ending today. Um, East Hampton artist Christina Balch joins us today to speak about these shows. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Christina, a momentous event occurred in 2020, which completely altered your studio practice enough that you wanted to document it. Tell us about that, please. Yes. Um, well, it's funny, two momentous events happened, right? For oh. most people, 2020 was the year the pandemic hit. Yes. But for me, it was also the year I had a baby, my first. So I became a parent and a mother. Um, and actually, both of those things happening at the same time meant that I raised my baby in basically total isolation. It, it was yeah. me and my partner and my baby, but we didn't really have uh, many other many others socialization and contact so so i wow. documented everything um i made sure that i i knew what was happening because i didn't know what i was doing you know that baby the baby arrives and you're like whoa what do i do <laughs> so, there's no manual yeah no <laughs> there's no manual so i collected a bunch of data as i as i was raising the baby so that i could keep track of the progress and and just so I so I could see what was happening because I and I could tell the doctors what was happening because I couldn't remember. So it was yeah it was a momentous year a big transition year for me. Yes, well you know I can only imagine what it's like raising a baby in isolation because essentially you couldn't go out you couldn't socialize with anyone because you know that whole first year is supposed to be a time when you sort of bond with other mothers you have the there the other children, which that hopefully will socialize your baby as well. Now, how yeah. did you document what you were recording during this time? Because, you know, uh, the first year is kind of a significant year and it really encompasses a lot of things. So Can I make one quick make one quick plug before oh. you answer that, Christina? For those who have not read uh, Anne Lamott's book, Operating Instructions, it is a really wonderful book. Operating Instructions and is as in the kids don't come with that. Operating instructions, a journal yeah. of my son's no. <laughs> first year. Kids don't come with operating instructions. It's a fabulous read. Okay, sorry to interrupt. <laughs> yeah, I did not get the manual. <laughs> um, so, you, so yeah, you recorded all this stuff. In what ways? Because, you know, as an artist, we have to, like, make stuff during this time. Yes, and that was a struggle because it feels like you have no time. You know, the baby is, is a huge demand on your time and your energy and your mental capacity and creative capacity. So um, 
and and that is why I actually started creating the data because my brain just couldn't really handle very much else besides raising the baby and trying to figure out what to do with her. <laughs> so I collected data on an app um, and I, I wanted it to be an app where I had privacy control and where I could export the data so that I had it myself. So I did a little research. I paid for the app. I didn't get a free one so that my data was was somewhat secure. And at first I just collected like diaper information because that was what the doctor wanted. And I actually collected my own sleep because I was pretty nervous about postpartum depression. And, mm. and so I was like, if I get enough sleep, that's the best thing I can do so that I don't get it. Nice. Um, so, uh, so I collected that data first and then eventually I just liked having that level of control. Um, I also do a lot of like photo documentation, like selfies and documenting what's going on. So I did a lot of photography as well. And some of that shows up in the exhibit, um, that I have at Anchor House right now. Um, but the data was, you know, it's inconsistent like data is, but it started with diapers, went into sleep, my sleep, and then the baby's sleep. And then food, you know, food eventually when she started solids, bottles, breastfeeding, um, I weight height. I, I got a little bit obsessed to be honest, because I really liked seeing <laughs> Wow, that's a lot of data. <laughs> well, and I work in technology too. So I was like, oh, this, at some point as I was collecting it, it didn't start out as an art project, but at some point I thought, oh, I've got a lot of good stuff here. So <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna really collect it all and see what I can do with it later when I hopefully have time to do something with it. Right. And so, you know, I know what's ha what's showing at the gallery right now. It's multimedia work. You have paintings, sketches, photography, and what you really document are sort of the ebb and flow, the highs and lows of parenting, raising a baby, because it's not glamorous. <laughs> the first year is no. definitely not glamorous. And what I love about this show is that you actually have a space for parents to rest and children to sort of relax so that parents can actually see this show. So maybe in a way that they can relate to what's happening and make sense of what's happening. Um, I think that's ab absolutely fa fabulous. Now, you also co-curated a show that is in a side gallery at Anchor House. Um, tell us about that. Sure, yeah. I co-curated an exhibit, a group exhibit with Liza Fennell of MICA, which is the Mother's Institute for Collaboration and Art. Um, based in Northampton, but it's a lot of a lot of people, a lot of local mother artists. And that show is called Labor. It's uh, three artists, all mother artists, um, Eva Pushkova, Esther White, and Carla Reyes. And it's a really great show about all the unseen labor that's in, in mothering and parenting. And it's different materials. There's some painting, there's some uh, quilts, and there's some actual um, rugs like hand pulled rugs that are, are really beautiful as well oh wow i mean well you talk about the idea of labor of love can you speak about that briefly because you know that's so uh it's such a loaded phrase really yes and and i actually when i say labor of love i i say it a little bit uh cynically <laughs> because it's a labor of love, you know, raising a child and having a baby and mothering, parenting, but it's also just a labor. It is so much hard work. And so I want people to remember it's a labor of love, but it's labor. It is work. People are working hard raising those kids. <laughs> yeah. And it's, you know, not everyone necessarily signed up for that, uh, but, you know, it is a part of the process. So, uh, Christina, how do people see your show and what are the hours at Anchor House of Artists? 
Yes, the both shows, Mama Data and Labor, are at Anchor House of Artists through 6 p.m. today. So, and I'll be there for a lot of the afternoon, 1 to 6 p.m. today. And then some of that work is traveling to North Adams to installation space for a group exhibit called Automatic Aura. Um, again, at installation space in North Adams starting July 7th. Well, I'm so thankful that you're bringing to light this subject because it is quite, um, it is quite a challenge when you are an artist mother. And I don't think a lot of enough is being said about that. And so it's, it's wonderful that you're documenting this. So Christi Christina Balch, you're at Anchor House of Artists just through today, one to six. Please see these shows. They're amazing and really important. Thank you. Christina Balch and Donabel Cassis, thank you very much for being with us. You've been listening to Artbeat on Talk the Talk. The beat goes on. Drums keep pounding a rhythm to the brain. Whatever the season, something fun is happening at the Hitchcock Center for the Environment. From home energy efficiency workshops to birding classes and nature walks, we have hands on activities happening all year long. Whether you're 2 or 92, the Hitchcock Center has an opportunity for you to connect with our natural world. Come visit us at our new location, the Hitchcock Center, 845 West Street in Amherst. For more information, visit hitchcockcenter.org. Grow Food Northampton helps you make the local food system better. This is Michael Skillicorn, Director of Programs. You can join us by shopping at Northampton Tuesday Market, getting a plot at our community garden in Florence, buying a farm share at Crimson and Clover or Sawmill Herb Farm. You can volunteer with us in our giving garden or participate in our neighborhood markets that bring the local food movement to underserved communities in Northampton. Get involved and support our work at growfoodnorthampton.com y hablamos español. Pregunte por Michael. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls. WHMP.com. Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Welcome to Talk to Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And we are joined at this time by State Senator Joe Comerford and Massachusetts Teachers Association President Max Page. Yesterday, the Supreme Court decided the case, one of two on affirmative action, the first being the Students for Fair Admissions, Inc., so-called, uh, versus the president and fellows of Harvard College. The court struck down affirmative action. It struck down consideration of race uh, in college admissions as being unconstitutional, essentially saying, uh, well, essentially saying that these remedial efforts to eradicate the effects of decades of discrimination and enslavement, well, all of those efforts, forget about them because, hey, we are in a post-racial society. Justice Thomas doesn't quite say that, but he comes really close to saying uh, we really can't do anything that might adversely affect white people. State Senator Joe Comerford, I'd appreciate your reaction to this decision and what we in Massachusetts and at the University of Massachusetts and in our state college systems and in our community college systems, if need be, what we should do and can do about it. Senator Comerford? Thanks, uh, Bill. Thanks, Buzz. It's good to join you. Of course, it's good to join you with Max, uh, and I'm grateful for the work of the MTA and Max's leadership in particular. Uh, 
we're probably going to talk more about this, but yesterday on the heels of the news, which we all expected, feared, dreaded, um, the governor, Governor Maura Healy, Lieutenant Governor Driscoll, joined by 130 education leaders, experts, including the MTA, Max, um, including the Senate president, including the Speaker of the House, me, the House chair of the Joint Committee on Higher Ed, the education chairs, we released a statement that essentially says Massachusetts will not yield. Uh, we will not um, allow this very misguided, uh, terribly destructive decision to influence our own commitment to racial diversity, to making public higher education uh, affordable, accessible, um, and to you know really lean in, to continue to lean into the transformative possibilities of a higher education system that is the kind of um, leveler of the playing field that we know it can and should be. Well, Senator Comerford, I really appreciate the commitment. What I think applies here is that old saw that the devil is in the details. How are we going to do that in light of the Supreme Court's decision? How will Massachusetts and our college and university systems, how will they affect diversity in admissions? Uh, so, you know, we're going to talk probably about a bill called the Cherish Act, which is a bill I file in, in partnership with the MTA uh, that is really the entire toolkit for creating excellent uh, institutions of higher education and then making them affordable and accessible to all. Uh, we need in Massachusetts to lean into debt-free public higher education, and those institutions that our students go to have to be excellent, and they have to have the physical infrastructure and well-compensated faculty and staff. Uh, and we have to create these bastions of opportunity in the state of Massachusetts that will fly in the face of the Supreme Court ruling. And breaking down barriers to access is no small task, as you're saying, Bill. It's going to take real financial investment, right, because we want students to go to excellent institutions, and we want those institutions to be wildly affordable and accessible. And I think we have, we have the tools, right? We have the roadmap in the Cherish Act uh, and the, I'm, you know, I'm proud. And I think Max would agree the Senate um, and the House, uh, but I'll just speak about the Senate, you know, has, has demonstrated a commitment to public higher education in this budget um, that gives me a, a glimmer of hope using fair share revenue in part, but not not all, some of it is core funded, um, that we just have to now, you know, it's a wedge, it's the door open, and now we have to just push the door all the way open to this opportunity. Well, that's a pretty optimistic take that we can actually uh, resist the Supreme Court's, I think, racist, and so do some Supreme Court justices, think racist decision. Max Page, your view? Is the senator onto something here? We're going to be actually, in Massachusetts, we'll be actually able to... Uh, uh, find our way through this morass that the Supreme Court has just created? For public higher education, right? Well, the private colleges and universities have the same issue, but Max, your view? Well, so one of the important things to note is that um, as even though right now we have um, commitment to diversity and are, are able, until yesterday, able to use race in admissions, uh, in as, fact, one, as, one, as one factor. As one factor, absolutely. We still have a huge gulf between those students who are able to go and 
go to college and graduate tends to be whiter and wealthier and then compared to those who um, don't have as have as much and tend to be students of color so we have a huge problem from the already even before the decision yesterday and i think the cherish act that senator cumberford has put forward is designed exactly to try to bridge that gap why is it that a student from long meadow um, same grades and test scores and the like will have far more likelihood of going to college a white student let's say from long meadow versus a student of color a black student from springfield just a few miles away so the point is we need one way to do this is one way to to push back is to eliminate the financial issue because in a in a country of such structural racism for so long people of color come into the to to the college admissions process with less wealth with less ability to pay for that college if we if we guarantee every family and we tell young people you'll be able to go to college pay a little bit you'll be working you know 10 hours a week but we'll we'll guarantee that you'll get that degree and not have to be burdened until middle age with with debt i think that is one way one that we help advance greater diversity on our campuses in, a, economic as well as racial do you think that addressing the economic disparities that so influence college admissions will actually lead to a greater or to diversity in the uh, uh, economic, not only the economic backgrounds, but the ethnic and racial composition of the classes? That's a question for both of you. Let's start with Senator Comerford, then I'll come back to you, Max Page. Well, yeah, I think that's one of the puzzle pieces that the Cherish Act contemplates. You know, the Cherish Act contemplates the, the stark and gross reality that communities of color are disproportionately struggle um, with poverty, disproportionately struggle with, uh, you know, the, a lack of access to economic wealth, um, generational wealth. And so, you know, the Cherish Act says one of the puzzle pieces here is to make it exceedingly affordable, flash free. Uh, and in doing that, no student has to contemplate the lack of their economic ability to do this. But that's not the only thing. Um, the only thing, you know, because once they get there, they need the structural support uh, to help, again, make up for these aching inequities, systemic generational inequities. And so that looks like, you know, strong, strong structures of support within the college or university. And it also looks like really understanding what the total cost of going to school is. So you can take away tuition and fees or drastically reduce them. Uh, depending on, you know, where we are in this hopeful arc. But then, you know, there is just the cost of living for a student. And that is something that is it continues to be a structural barrier uh, that also has to be addressed if we're really to look at, um, if we're really to look at paving the way for the greatest diversity, uh, economic, racial, ethnic diversity of students being able to attend these, again, public, this is in the public sector, public um, Campuses. Well, let me ask you, Max Page, president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association, do you think that the senator is being uh, too optimistic here? And or what do you think the effect will be of the governor's new commission to, I think it's fair, it's fair to state, to come to some way to work around uh, the Supreme Court's decision yesterday? Ah, 
think what we have here on our screen is a frozen Max page. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is a moment of silence. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll note this moment, a moment of silence from Max Page. <laughs> Senator, the, the, the floor is yours because Max is frozen. So talk to us. I mean, the, the Senate did a good thing in this budget, and I'm grateful to the Senate president, and I'm really grateful for the fair share revenue. Uh, but none of this is simple. Uh, and here I'm also grateful to Governor Healy and Lieutenant Governor Driscoll, you know, for what was a very strong statement yesterday and then this follow-up work to convene educational leaders to say, okay, um, how are we going to do this in Massachusetts? And so... We're talking about a number of different things here. One, we're talking about a real revolution or transformation in the public sector, our public campuses, community colleges, state colleges, and state universities. And the governor is also talking about something even bigger, which is how do we as a commonwealth work with public and private um, on a path forward in the face of this, I agree with you, racist decision by the Supreme Court. So, you know, I... I think it's okay to be hopeful given this positive trend, but there's no way that we can be hopeful without also taking a strong dose of pragmatism um, because what we're talking about here is um, uncharted territory. What we're talking about here is, you know, pretty significant uh, capital needs and for investment by the state, you know, amid all these other aching challenges that the Commonwealth is facing. So none of this will be simple. State Senator Joe Comerford, we really appreciate your time. Uh, I know on short notice to be with us today. I really appreciate your insights and your leadership. Max, I'm sorry you were frozen there. We'll give you one more minute to make, our, make us feel better that there is a way to create and to enhance diversity in our colleges and at the university because we will not be defeated by this Supreme Court. So yeah. give us a word of encouragement. Okay. So I believe that it's so important that we do this, that we must do it. And we must be willing to use the economic um, incentives of making college more affordable. We need to provide the sufficient staff to make students of color feel welcome and supported. We can absolutely do this. It requires a, a sustained commitment but because it's so important to individuals to gain a college degree and because it's so important for our society to have a diversity of our people learning and studying and debating together, we simply have to do it. And I, I, I believe we can. We actually are ahead of the game because we have the blueprint of the CHERISH Act that Senator Cumberford has been um, uh, advocating for in the legislature. Here, here, Max. We leave it there. Max Page, president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association and State Senator Joe Comerford, thank you both so much for your time and insights today. We really appreciate it and you. Well, thanks for taking this up. And let's stay on this. Let's stay on this. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Sunday mornings on WHMP means polka, polka carousel. Every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, TZ brings his award-winning polka carousel to the airwaves of the valley, playing the polka classics and the latest polka hits. There are polka hits. Brought to you by Saluzniak Funeral Home, Northampton's funeral home for over 110 years and four generations of unparalleled, thoughtful memorial care. 
It's Polka Carousel every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, WHMP. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts and messages from community nonprofits. At the Black Sheep in Amherst, they're still baking and cooking from scratch, just like they have for almost four decades. Did you put off a party or anniversary due to COVID? Let the Black Sheep Deli help you finally celebrate this summer. You deserve it. Treat your guests to their wonderful appetizers, entrees, baked goods, and luscious desserts. No need to do all the work yourself. Let the Black Sheep Deli help you make your party a success with less stress. The Black Sheep Deli, open seven days a week and still having fun with food since 1986. The Paul Parent Garden Club, every Sunday, 6 to 8 a.m. Brought to you by Weinzick Nursery, locally owned and operated since 1954. Visit Mike, Amity, John, and the rest of the team at Weinzick Nursery, Route 9 in Hadley, and online at weinzicknursery.com. Using WIC is easier than ever. You can use the WIC card instead of checks for your food purchases. WIC is a free nutrition program that helps working families stretch their food budget and make healthy choices. Visit us at mass.gov WIC, brought to you by the Massachusetts Department of Public Health's WIC Nutrition Program. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. You know, uh, in this region, we often refer to local heroes, those people that are actually uh, raising good food, promoting the distribution of good food. Um, there is no uh, greater local heroes than the two people that we have with us here, the co-founders, the owners of Side Hill Farm, that small creamery that produces fresh certified organic yogurt from grass-fed Cows. It is Amy Klippenstein and it is Paul Lasinski. Thank you so much for joining us here in the studio. Thanks, Buzz. Thanks, Buzz. Thanks, Amy. Thanks, Paul. So, uh, I guess where we should start is tell us a little bit about how you two Amherst College graduates got into yogurt making. How the heck does that happen, Amy Klippenstein? <laughs> well, we actually started out when we first moved to Asheville in 1997. We were intending to homestead. And we were pretty much growing all of our own food, um, with the exception of yogurt. And Paul is a big yogurt fan. He, Paul considers a quart of yogurt to be a single size serving. Um, so he was going through a couple gallons of yogurt a week. And that was the one thing that we weren't making ourselves. And he suggested that maybe we should get some cows. And then suddenly we had three cows, and unexpectedly, that turned into four cows. It's usually a puppy or a kitten, right? It's, yeah, yeah. But yep. not with Paul Lasinski. It's a cow he Correct, wants. correct. And uh, we got these three cows, and they weren't supposed to calve. We got them in September. They weren't supposed to calve until March. The first one calved the next day. Surprise. Surprise. So the learning curve was pretty steep. Um, and which we like, of course. Which we like. And so the adventure began right there. And 
What is it about yogurt, Paul Lisinski? Yeah, it's a good question, right? Well, it goes with strawberries this time of year. Mm -hmm. Hopefully it goes with blueberries if there mm -hmm. are some to be had. We'll see how people are doing after the crazy weather this winter, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. You know, you everybody likes what they like. So tell us, uh, how do you make yogurt? What do you do? What do you do? You take the milk as freshly as possible from the cows, um, heat it up to quite a high temperature, actually 185 degrees, um, hold it there, and then bring it back down to our culturing temperature, which is around 101, 102, 103. Um, put in the cultures, and then we get it all packaged as quickly as we can. And in four or five, six hours, it depends on pH, um, it, is, it goes in the cooler, and the next day it is ready to be eaten. There's so much science here. Woo. What did you major in at Amherst College? <laughs> yeah, not a lot of science in there. <laughs> How about you, Amy? What did you major in? Oh, you know, English and Russian, which is, you know, all completely useful on a day-to-day -day basis. <laughs> yeah, that liberal arts degree really came in useful, yeah. huh? I yeah. think a couple of those yogurt cultures might have kind of some Russian background <laughs> Russian in, the, culture. in the language there somewhere. So I, 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 have a, I have a remedial question in the art of yogurt making. You just said, I think that you bring the yogurt up to 185 degrees? Is it something like that? Before the cultures go in. So it's the milk that goes the to milk. How does the... Degrees. Okay. Uh, uh, then we cool it down. How does it not curdle at 185 yeah, degrees? Yeah, right. Well, you do, it doesn't, but you have to be careful. Oh, yeah, good. You don't want to get too much hotter. Oh, it's not a totally idiotic question. Bill, there's a no. future in yogurt making. For <laughs> you. I don't know about that. So at 185 degrees, it doesn't it's okay. curdle. It's okay. Wow. Okay. Yes. All right. Well, Don't you, try this at home. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say, in my microwave, they don't, they don't, never mind, never mind. Uh, the other thing about Side Hill Farm and your yogurt is that you purchase all your milk from this community of local farmers um, that all have grass-fed, fed, not felled, <laughs> fed cows, and not grass-like dispensaries. We're talking about, like, they're eating... Grass. There's some poison ivy in there and some other things, but you're right. Nothing like a dispensary. Yeah. Ago. So tell us about your commitment. I'm I'm very interested in your commitment to to uh, local farmers and what they do. Amy, I think you know since we have been farmers for so long, and I you know just to be clear that we are no longer farming. We have sold the actual farm. We still operate the creamery. We still buy the milk from local farms. Um, but having been farmers, we really understand the whole economics and really the sort of, you know, the cultural experience of being a farmer, which is very different than your everyday person. You know, when we first sold the herd, we used to joke that we discovered the weekend. Like nobody had ever told farmers about the weekend. <laughs> we and didn't want to tell anybody. anybody. We were no, like, we wait in. a minute, everybody <laughs> else is taking two days off a week? How come nobody told us about this? Um, so, you know, it is, it is, you're so in it. You're so, it so encompasses your life. Um, That's a really different way of being in the world. And I think we have an understanding of that from being there firsthand and know how important this is on so many levels, you know, not just to the people who are farmers, but also to our whole food system, to our local landscape. I mean, think about how much we really treasure about Western Mass in terms of open land and views. And a lot of that has to do because farms are keeping land open. Um, so it's sort of, you know, agriculture is so completely woven through our experience of living here in Western Mass. Um, and 
as well as economically. I mean, you know, dairy farms in particular are huge economic engines for the community. They spend a lot of money. I mean, we used to joke that a dairy farm would be a perfect opportunity to be a money laundering operation because so much cash goes through and very little actually stays on the well, farm. We, uh, my spouse and I have lived in Ashfield since 71, and when we first came, I think there were 46 dairy farms, mm. and, and now there's a handful. So right. the thing about this is so much of agriculture now, right, has gone to scale. And, you know, what does you that get mean, a, gone to scale? Meaning uh, scaled up, scaled up, scaled up to get more efficient. Agribusiness. Yeah, which, which favors quantity and favors a lower price, which we could... There are negatives to that, and there are positives to that. You know, we we can. That's almost a different conversation. But that sort of starts somewhere out in New York State, right, and heads out into the Midwest and California, where people can run gigantic tractors over really large pieces of relatively flat land. It's not what we have around here. Really, a very few places in New England, a few of the river valleys, and um, so a smaller scale of agriculture makes sense here, and the opportunity there is for quality. Um, as compared to volume. And so that's what we've tried to focus on is, you know, for, to make the yogurt we want to make requires a little higher quality of milk than the average. Um, in exchange, we can afford to pay more to farms because our distribution lines are shorter. There aren't two or three levels of middlemen taking cuts. There isn't as much going to transportation and et cetera. Um, so it's a model that works well for the more local distribution. Like, you know, 95% of our sales, I think, are in Massachusetts. Maybe that, 97. I want to point out, Paul Lusky so. of Side Hill Farm, I want to point out that you you ensure that there are fair prices paid to the farmers that, that uh, you deal with. And, and part of this is stuff that I don't understand, but soil biology and things like that that really concern you, Amy Klippenstein. You want to make sure that what people are getting is a quality product product that's really good for them good for the cows good for the region right right good for you know health on every level from you know like you said all the way from the little creatures in the soil up through the cows through the farmers through the people who are eating the yogurt that sort of total picture of health is really what we're committed to and you're also committed to the environment and i know that one of the things that has been troubling you side hill uh farms um uh yogurt is of incredible uh, for all the reasons we were just talking about it is really good for the environment but you still serve it in plastic containers and petroleum hydrocarbons are causing those greenhouse gas emissions that emissions that we're also concerned about what can side hill i think you just got a grant can we talk about that and this i just want to say this is an exclusive on this show what we're about to don't tell anybody (laughs) (laughs) so um so we are working with a great engineer from Buckland, James Lombino, um, who's been thinking about this stuff for a long time, uh, on a pilot project. River Valley Market is our partner in this project. Yay. Um, to trial a reusable stainless steel yogurt container. So if you imagine the, a 32-ounce yogurt container, which everybody knows what that looks like, and sort of cross that with a stainless water bottle. Um, you know, Hydro Flask or Clean Plantain, one of those water bottles you see. So imagine the yogurt container made out of that single wall stainless steel water bottle material. Quite durable, very light, um, not breakable like glass, which is a huge thing for inside our production facility. You don't throw it into, the, into your transfer station's plastic recycling bin. Right. Yeah. So you now, so the idea is people have this metal container, pay a deposit. It actually will be a significant deposit to be upfront about that. 
but I, you pay it once or, or maybe two or three if, if that's how many you eat in a week. The next week you if bring you're it Paul back. Sinsky who loved yogurt. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you think about Maple Lines glass milk bottles, right? People buy those in a store. Other companies as well, but they're kind of the biggest one locally. My they childhood. bring the bottle back. My childhood, we all had glass milk bottles. Yeah. We put them back in the crate that they came in, and they would be picked up by the milkman. Yeah. So we're quite excited. We just got a grant to trial this, and the reason we need a grant is there actually are quite a lot of technical issues. Getting the foil to stick to the stainless, there's a whole... That's the, the obvious foil at the one. top, like the cover you're the talking seal, about? The seal, not the lid, but the seal that's underneath it. Um, and um, th yeah, there's just a whole lot of details, but we are... Hoping around the first, right, basically after the Christmas and New Year holidays in January is our target date for when to first introduce these. And it's just wow. going to be a pilot at just at the River Valley Market stores, not even all the flavors. But we're hoping that we can work out all the details and it's something to, we can bring to reduce the amount of plastic. Who was the grantor? Ah, uh, yes. It is the Northeast Dairy Business Innovation Center. It's basically COVID money. Um, it's centered at the University of Vermont. There's a lot of great stuff up there for innovative projects in dairy because dairy is kind of a dying industry, generally because people are drinking less fluid milk. But Go back to flavors. Flavors? <laughs> I want to hear about flavors. <laughs> uh, what do you want to hear about flavors? A, a, a lot. Okay. <laughs> the ones we make? Is that... Well, let's go with those. Yeah. yeah. So um, we're for the moment still on those, we're sticking with what we know how to do, which is... Whole milk and low-fat plain, um, and maple and vanilla, and the uh, all-sweetened, mind you, with local maple syrup from Worthington, from Snowshoe Farm in Worthington. Except for the plains, which have Except no for the plains, which are completely unsweetened. And um, we periodically think about fruit, and it's complicated to not have weird chemical stuff which is to say, like, opening the container and it looks like somebody vomited inside. Really weird chemical stuff. <laughs> nice image. Yeah, right? Now you see why we're... Um, Are you talking about the Supreme Court again? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we just haven't eaten in the last 24 hours. That's one way to solve that problem. The um, uh, ridiculous amount of sugar in the fruit base, like 64%, oh. if I'm recalling correctly, is the industry standard, which is why all the, all the fruit yogurts taste so sweet. And yeah, maybe there's a way around that, but we haven't found that yet. And so we're kind of trying to focus on keep making the product we make well and deal with some of these other issues like the packaging. Wow. We are talking to Paul Lusinski and Amy Klippenstein of uh, Side Hill Farm. And we're going to be right back after this. I want to talk about the regenerative architecture and um, some work that the uh, World Bank is doing in that regard. We'll be right back. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A Southampton man is seeking a curfew change as he awaits trial for an alleged rape and strangulation case. Matthew Tebow pleaded not guilty in January to the charges. Tebow, a former mortgage loan officer, has been free on $25,000 cash bail. His attorney says the curfew is preventing Tebow from finding work. Tebow also faces three counts of rape, two counts of assault and battery on a family household member, and single counts of strangulation or suffocation charges, stalking and extortion by threat of injury in Franklin County. The judge will review the case and then issue a ruling. 
You might want to stay out of the Connecticut River for a couple of days, especially anytime after it rains. Rain caused an estimated 7.7 million gallons of water tainted with sewage to be released into the river. Mass Live reports the discharges were from 13 sites along the river and that discharges like this have been happening for a long time. The term is called combined sewer overflows, which means when it rains heavily, rainwater mixes with untreated sewage and is released into the river. The city expects to complete a $137 million new pump station on York Street, which could make these releases less frequent. The Greenfield Police Department has received two grants from the Massachusetts Jail Diversion Programs. A $100,000 grant will support the Crisis Intervention Team, which Deputy Chief William Gordon says plays a critical role when dealing with behavioral health incidents. The second grant has doubled from what they received last year. A $200,000 co-response grant will allow the department to add a second full-time clinician from clinical and support options. For today, we'll have a mixture of sunshine and clouds, slight chance for a spot shower this afternoon, highs 84 to 88. Tonight, partly cloudy, overnight lows 58 to 62. And the outlook for Saturday, partly sunny, highs in the low to mid-80s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. Tag, you're it. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Tom Hartman Program, your home for the resistance, commentary, conversation, and common cause. Join me, Tom Hartman, every weekday from noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 1105-1400-WHMP. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Ah, summer in New England, and the local farmers are showing up at the co-op every day with summer berries, basil, and tomatoes, an endless bounty of fresh fruits and vegetables. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats, sausage, lots of grilling ideas. And in the co-op cheese department, get fresh mozzarella for your caprese salad. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Publishers Clearinghouse has agreed to an $18.5 million settlement with the Federal Trade Commission, with most of the money going to consumers. The FTC said the sweepstakes company used deception to persuade people to buy products that were unrelated to the sweepstakes. The latest Consumer Affairs Trend Micro Threat Alert has identified a big increase in scams related to Amazon's upcoming Prime Day. One of the top scams involves phishing emails that try to trick people to log into a fake website where their login credentials are then stolen. Credit card swipe fees continue to rise, and assuming merchants pass them on to consumers, it could make Fourth of July celebrations more expensive. The Merchants Payments Coalition says the cost of celebrating Independence Day could increase by $500 million. I'm Mark Huffman. Learn more at ConsumerAffairs.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We're continuing our conversation with Amy Klippenstein and Paul Lezinski of Side Hill Farms. I want to first alert our listeners, that the Supreme Court has just issued its opinion, another six to three opinion. The court has decided that the Christian business owner need not create a website for uh, same-sex marriage weddings. This is for a website designer citing his Christian beliefs, saying, I cannot uh, and should not be 
uh, subject to open uh, to public accommodations law, that I have the right to discriminate. And the Supreme Court said, well, yes, you do. We'll be following this up in forthcoming shows, of course. Buzz, I give the microphone back to you for our very special guests. Well, I just heard that from the first time. Uh, not that we didn't anticipate that, but uh, yes, you have the right to discriminate seems to be the theme of this Supreme Court. But uh, we are back with um, with Sidehill uh, farm owners, um, Paul Lusinski and Amy Klippenstein. We're talking about this incredible um, concept of instead of the yogurt containers that we're used to, uh, stainless steel yogurt containers that are reusable, that we just have to wash them. And once we figure out that how to make that little... What do you call that cover? Uh, the seal, the foil seal. The seal that goes under the lid. Um, and what uh, to use for a lid, actually, is another matter. There are a bunch of questions, but still. This is, I'm so glad it's you and not me, because I couldn't figure my <laughs> way out of, out of a yogurt container. <sighs> but you also, with your six-ounce yogurt container, we're all familiar with buying little plastic containers of yogurt. Um, what's up with that? Yeah, so this is a really exciting thing. Also, that we didn't expect to be two, doing two different packaging innovations sort of in one year. Um, but we learned about, actually from an Asheville resident, Ben Markins, uh, about a company called Hudamaki, which is based in Finland, that makes paperboard containers for liquid products. And they are tr trying to get this six-ounce cup into the U.S. market, and I think we are probably one of the first companies that will carry this. And so we've been working with them for the last several months on the artwork and the design of this. Um, but it is a six ounce cup that is made out of paper um, and will be able to be recycled with paper. So just in your regular transfer station cardboard recycling bin, you can throw the cups right in. And so hopefully we will have those online towards the end of the year, maybe into the beginning of uh, 2024. But we're excited about it because the printing is great. So the graphics are excellent. They're going to look very similar to our court cups, which have... With you know, the cow. With the cow and the, like, the photographic cloud in the background and, you know, the um, really clear imagery. Um, so I'm excited. What, what you know, kind of ink do you use on, on, a, on a paper product like that that will not be destructive of the environment? You know, that's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. In we'll talk progress. to the people at Hudamaki. Right. <laughs> Say it again, Hudamaki. 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 H u h t a m a k i. I Finish. can barely pronounce it, but I like the way it sounds. Yeah, <laughs> but this is really exciting because we have had to go with you know plastic cups, and um, the the plastic cups that we've been using up until now for our six cents ones, the graphics are terrible. You know, I'm sure anybody who's bought them has known they're kind of smeary, and it's it's a direct print process, which is really on plastic is expensive to set up. And the quality is not so great. So we're going to get photo quality graphics on that, and we have this recyclable cup. And the other big difference is we, if they end up in the trash, which we're pretty sure that the recycling rate on the single servings are, is lower than on the 32-ounce ones, because people tend to eat them at school, at work, in the car, whatever. Um, at least we're talking then about paper that is, that is ultimately biodegradable in a landfill instead of plastic that's going to sit there for who knows how long. Well, so. I, I wish we had more time, but thanks to the Supreme Court, we are uh, <laughs> we're running a little what short. What do you know? <laughs> you served by the Supreme Court. But I, I just want to say to have a, uh, you are local heroes, the local heroes that are innovating, that uh, perhaps creating models for the entire 
dairy industry, yogurt producing industry, and sour cream and cottage cheese, uh, uh, reusable uh, containers that won't be uh, uh, creating gas house emissions that kill our planet, um, and paper products that will hold your uh, food products. It's just very, very exciting. How does it feel to be that kind of a potential <laughs> uh, innovator? Uh, well, <laughs> we actually really are excited about the stainless part that, um, you know, if we really can get it to work and be practical on all levels, we think that other people will jump on it once they see. The way it often works, both from the regulators and kind of in the marketplaces, nobody really wants to be first, you know? Because mm -hmm. uh, it's a lot of work to get it figured out, and, and not everything works. Except Talk to Talk, which has a scoop on your side. Hey. Hey. Two scoops, because we got two different packaging. So we really have found that um, people seem really excited about this and are really more than willing, excited to put in a small amount of extra work to rinse something, toss it into your bag, and bring it back to the store. Think when returnable grocery bags came in, mm -hmm. right? People, oh, I'm not gonna, people aren't gonna do that. Well, people, turns out they have loved that. It's a small thing, but it's something people can do. And we feel like this is, a, is just another small step in that direction, you know, and a million small steps, you start to get somewhere. <laughs> Amy Klippenstein, where can people find Side Hill Farm yogurt? You can find it at River Valley Market in Northampton and East Hampton. You can find it at most of the local Big Ys, Whole Foods in Hadley, um, lots of small stores up and down the valley, um, and all the way out, all the way to Boston. And we should support it. They are local heroes, and it sounds like their their reach is going to be far more than local if, in fact, these experiments in uh, paper packaging and stainless steel reusable packaging actually comes to fruition. Oh, when when are we talking about this fall? When do you think? We think the paper cups will probably will probably start using those end of 2023 beginning of 2024. The stainless cups, you know, we still have we're you know, this is a pilot project. So, we're not 100% sure that this is going to work. We're hopeful, enthusiastic, optimistic. Um, but that might be a little bit longer before you're actually seeing those in stores just because there are so many steps. There's the R&D, there's like working out the system of collecting them, washing them, getting them back into the filling line. Um, there's but just we're a hoping lot for January. We're hoping for January. We'll, we'll see. We're we'll hoping see what for happens. January too. This could have a profound impact on the environmental uh, movement in this country and in your industry and uh, the way we all buy what we eat. Uh, they are Amy Klippenstein and Paul Lusinski. They are the founders and owners of Sidehill Farm. They're making a difference. When we come back, we're going to be talking with Charles Eisenstein on how the environmental movement can find its way again. You're helping to do that. Sounds we'll be good. right back. And when we come back, we'll give you the announcement about the Supreme Court having just decided the student loan case. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. There goes the light. Go ahead. You're on the air. When Radio Was relives the golden age of radio. Do you ever listen to the radio? Oh, I might tune in one of those comedy programs occasionally. Can't you see anything at all under that blindfold? Well, on a clear day, I can see the blindfold. You can. Yeah. I'm Greg Bell, and join me with a switch of a dial. When Radio Was brings you a whole world at your command. When Radio Was, right here, Sunday nights from 8 to 10 on 101.5 WHMP. Quiet, numbskulls. I'm broadcasting. The percussive dances of African-American fraternities and sororities, plus West African and South African dance with Step Africa on its way to UMass. Momix blends illusion, acrobatics, and magic in a mind-bending interpretation of Alice in Wonderland. 
The UMass Fine Arts Center season. Tickets are on sale now. America's premier flamenco dance company, Flamenco Vivo Carlotta Santana. UMass alum Stephen Kellogg reads from his book, Objects in the Mirror, and performs favorite songs. The UMass Fine Arts Center. Dance, classical, jazz, theater, and performances you just can't categorize. Plan now for a season of uplifting arts performances. Go to the UMass Fine Arts Center website for the complete calendar. The new season is here. Get your tickets now. Where's the nearest farm stand? On the Local Hero website, you can search and find out. There are 142 Local Hero farm stands listed. I bet there's one pretty close to you. Get your beef for grilling, corn pick fresh this morning, buy eggs where you can see chickens pecking. Where's the nearest Local Hero farm stand? There's one close by. Check the Local Hero Guide at CISA's website, buylocalfood.org. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. The Supreme Court has just issued its decision in validating President Biden's loan forgiveness, up to $20,000 of loan forgiveness for college debt. They obviously have not had the opportunity to read the decision yet, but the headline is the Supreme Court has invalidated that program of President Biden's. Another victory for corporate America, along with the decision that uh, uh, also issued uh, this morning that the free speech rights or the religion, it's not free speech, it's really uh, the religious rights of someone who wants to discriminate against LGBTQ people uh, takes precedence over uh, public accommodations law and the right to discriminate was preserved by the Supreme Court today saying, no, the website designer need not uh, design a website for a, a gay wedding uh, because well, the right to discriminate is really important in America. That joyful laughter you hear in the background is hate having a fine time this week as a result of the Supreme Court. But uh, let's move on to something much more hopeful. Let's move on to our next guest. It's Charles Eisenstein, um, who is literally an expert on how the environmental movement can find its way again. We need some help here, Charles. Tell us how the environmental movement can find its way again. Uh, well, you know, I was just listening to your previous segment on the uh, yogurt packaging. Uh, and I think that that's actually a, a beautiful illustration of a step onto the way. I thought you two would be a good uh, marriage for today's uh, show. Yeah, yeah. Because, uh, you know, the, the cynic in me or probably in all of us would say, well, you know, Yogurt packaging, it's such a tiny percentage of our uh, landfill waste and, and so forth. Like what, what, you know, it's kind of like plastic straws. I mean, really, what's the difference? But it really, um, for one thing, it, it uh, signals a new possibility and begins to uh, uh, develop consumer habits uh, and normalizes that kind of thing. Uh, and starts to build the infrastructure for it. Um, but also it gives people a chance to express the relationship that they would like to be having with the environment, which is no longer a relationship of extraction and exploitation, but people really want to act in some way. 
And I think that that a lot of what we see in environmental discourse these days is so focused on the global issue of climate change that that it can feel really disempowering, especially when climate change is invoked as the reason for everything bad happening in a kind of fundamentalism. So it's not that I, you know, don't believe in climate change, but but um, the the carbon fundamentalism that equates green to low carbon and leads to the uh, to actually many many solutions that are causing further ecological destruction uh, is really alienating a lot of people and, and cutting them off from the, the original uh, motivation of environmentalism. Well, let's Which let's is, let's yeah. let listeners know who they are listening to. Since you you're, uh, since you left Yale, graduated from Yale University, could you tell us a little bit about Charles Eisenstein and what you do? <laughs> oh man, I mean, I spent I spent many years. Yeah, I studied mathematics and philosophy at, at Yale, and then I totally jumped ship. I went to Taiwan. I was a translator for many years, and came back in my early 30s and began writing. Uh, on, on civilization and basically the transition in the defining stories, or you could even say mythologies, of our society uh, from a story of separation, control, domination, to a story of interconnection, ecology, interbeing. Um, and then I apply that to various fields, and one of them is uh, environment. So I wrote a book called Climate, and New Story, which is the the genesis of the uh, talk I'm going to be giving in Massachusetts tomorrow, and uh, just the the topic that we're talking about right now. And you speak on the topic that we're talking about right now all over the place. You are a frequent uh, invited speaker to talk about, uh, well, I guess, reclaiming the environmental movement. And um, so, yeah, be, yeah, because y- you know. I remember back when I was a kid, uh, it, I read an article in National Geographic about uh, Amazon deforestation. And it had the maps, you know, here's what it was in 1950, here's what it was in 1980, and it was alarming. But I thought, well, at least it's in the, you know, it's in National Geographic, and we're surely going to do something about it. You know, in the 80s, the environmental movement was going strong still, despite Ronald Reagan being in office. Uh, and there's a lot of hope that we were on, you know, we had passed the Endangered Species Act, the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act in the in the in the 60s and 70s. And, and you know, we thought that we were on a healing path. Here we are 30, 40 years later, and the environment is worse in almost every respect. And and so something something's wrong here. Yeah, something is wrong here. So. I, I wish we had more time, but we don't. We only have about four more minutes. What what can what should people know? What should people do? Who should people talk to? Well the main the main paradigm that I draw from is the living earth paradigm that understands earth as as alive uh, and and understands that the organs of this living being which are soil, water, forests, wetlands, 
whales, keystone species, every species, insects, um, beavers, you know, all, all of the, the organs of this planet are necessary for Earth to maintain homeostasis, to maintain an environment suitable for life, that life creates the conditions for life, and that we human beings are no exception to that. Our purpose here on Earth, like that of all species, is to contribute to the continued unfolding of life on Earth. And we have, uh, as a civilization at least, um, not, not all humans, but as a civilization, we have abdicated that responsibility. And all of us have, on some level, a very deep desire to return to that and to be not just harmless on Earth, but to actually contribute right now to the Earth's healing. So, Charles Eisenstein, you are going to be on July 1st, I think at 7 o'clock at the Shea Theater, our own Shea Theater in Turner's Falls. Um, You're going to be speaking there. What are you going to be speaking about there? Well, I'm going to uh, elaborate on (laughs) what I just began telling you Um, and and really to, to reconnect us to the heart of environmentalism so that we can take another path and fulfill the optimism of the 60s and 70s when 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 you know environmentalism wasn't even political it crossed political boundaries of course we want to heal the earth i want to to reconnect us to that and i think uh so it's going to be on july 1st at seven o'clock to nine o'clock the tickets are 25 dollars, but i think there's a sliding scale available for those who well tickets that's the suggested amount but but i invite people to pay uh, any amount, more or less, uh, and not to feel guilty about it if it's less. I, I want everybody to come who's interested in the topic. People should be interested in the topic. It's an important yeah. part of the topic. You are on the Board of Advisors of the Andes Amazon Conservancy. That, too, is based right in Montague, right? Yeah, that's right. They're doing incredible work um, and uh, uh, working with indigenous people in the area to um, – establish their territory and prevent development and preserve wildlife corridors. Well, um, I can't tell you how much we appreciate what you do. Um, We are all so concerned uh, that the progress you thought was going to happen when, I I remember Earth Day in 19, whatever it was, the first one, I think it was 1971, and I thought, okay, we're there, we're home free, and like you, have been frequently (laughs) disappointed. Uh, We have been speaking with Charles Eisenstein. Uh, It is July 1st that he will be appearing at the Shea Theater um, in Turner's Falls, the beloved Shea Theater, at 7 o'clock. There's a sliding scale on ticket prices. Donations of $25 would be accepted. Charles, thank you so much, not just for being with us today, but for all you do. Well, thank you so much. Okay. And for you listeners who have joined us uh, this week, it's a, it's a sad week in so many ways because of what the Supreme Court has been doing. But, um, hey, we're all going to keep plugging. We won't just talk the talk. We will also walk the walk. Thank you. Have a great holiday weekend. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Get takeout, save 30%. Get candles or hit the links. Save 30%. Dog grooming, outdoor recreation, burritos, save 30%. 
The Shop 30 store, full value gift certificates to local restaurants and merchants, plus tickets and events. Just click, print, and save 30% on the stuff you were gonna buy anyway. The Shop 30 store, open right now at whmp.com. Did you know that you can prevent domestic and sexual violence? You can say something. We all can say something. Together, we can do so much. Say Something is the domestic and sexual violence prevention program at Safe Passage. Join a prevention lab to build your skills and find opportunities to say something to prevent violence. Join us and help make your community safe and healthy for everyone. Get more information or sign up for a prevention lab at saysomethingnow.org. WHMP Northampton.